Hello, you're very welcome to Long Reads, a Jacobin podcast where we look in depth at political topics and thinkers. My name's Daniel Finn, I'm the Features Editor here at Jacobin, and I'll be presenting the show. Rip It Up and Start Again was a 1983 single by the Scottish indie group Orange Juice. The title now seems to capture the feeling of many Scots about the United Kingdom. Since Boris Johnson won the UK general election at the end of 2019, support for independence has gone up in the polls. The Scottish National Party won this year's Scottish Parliament election for the fourth consecutive time. They've just agreed a pact with the Scottish Greens, who also support independence. Their primary goal is to hold a second referendum after falling short in 2014. But Johnson's Tory government in London says it won't even consider the idea. Our guest today for a conversation about the possible breakup of Britain is Scottish journalist Jamie Maxwell. What were the main implications of this year's Scottish Parliament election for the cause of Scottish independence? Well, in some ways, the election result didn't didn't change all that much. Um, there was a pro-independence majority in the Scottish Parliament during the last holiday term, and that didn't automatically prompt the breakup of Britain. So, this election result, although it was it was an emphatic victory for the SNP. It didn't really change the fundamentals of the of the debate. Um, the SNP and the and the Scottish Greens, who are who are a separatist party, a left leaning party, want a second independence referendum. The Conservatives and the Labour Party don't, and that sort of uneasy constitutional standoff between nationalists and unionists isn't isn't going to go away um, anytime soon. But I think what the election did do was confirm the electoral dominance of of the SNP and the durability of support. For independence. So we're now at a point in which the baseline, uh, there is a baseline of 45 to 50% of Scots who want to leave the UK. Between, say, 1970 and 2010, support for independence rarely breached the 30 or 35% mark. And it's that gradual but relentless increase in, in separatist sentiment that I think so sort of terrifies British political leaders because they have no, they have no answer to it. Um, and everything they've tried so far Increasing Scotland's legislative autonomy within the UK or attacking the economics of independence and now sort of belligerently waving a, a union jack post-Brexit has failed. So even if the route map to a separate Scottish state isn't all that clear, and, and, it, and it still isn't despite the, the result in May, the idea itself of, of independence seems to be becoming more more powerful or at least more generally accepted. So I think Scotland's Overton window, as it were, has, has has shifted quite significantly over the past five or ten years and unionist parties just haven't worked out yet how it shifted back. The SNP had a big membership surge after the 2014 referendum, which was arguably foreshadowing the Labour Party's membership surge under Jeremy Corbyn. Has that made a real difference to the party's internal life? I mean, no, no it hasn't, which is extraordinary when, when you think about it. The SNP became a, a mass membership party in the wake of the 2014 referendum. Its membership grew from around twenty or 30,000 to more than 100,000 in a, in a very short amount of time, almost almost overnight. And many of those joining were ex-Labour members or Labour voters who had backed independence in September in September 2014 as a sort of social democratic escape from, from austerity Britain. And yet, over the course of the last five, six, seven years, the SNP has not become a, a, a more meaningfully democratic organisation. It's still very tightly controlled from the top down by a relatively small number of people around Nicola Sturgeon and her husband, who's the, the party's chief executive, Peter Murrow. 
Um, conference resolutions are still routinely ignored by party elites, and the strategy for independence is still more or less exclusively decided by those elites. So although 2014 was celebrated by, by independent supporters as this great democratic moment in Scottish public life, and although it was undoubtedly an important staging post in the, in the broader disintegration of, of, of the Union, of Anglo-Scottish ties, it didn't materially change the balance of power in Scotland. It's not as though Scottish politics suddenly became more open or, or participatory as a result of the SNP's subsequent success. And I think that that gives you a key insight into the sort of party the SNP is. I mean, it's a highly effective, very disciplined, election-winning machine. It's very good at mobilising its base periodically in the run-up to an election. But it's not interested in, in radically democratising Scotland. And that is not Nicola Sturgeon's overarching political project. And the most remarkable thing of all, perhaps, is that the SNP membership doesn't seem to mind. I mean, they'll, they'll, they'll stay in line. They'll maintain their discipline for as long as Sturgeon retains her grip on power at Holyrood and for as long as the prospect of a second referendum sits somewhere sort of vaguely on the horizon. For many years, the SNP was renowned for its tight discipline behind the leadership of Alex Salmond. That all changed when Salmond faced allegations of sexual assault after he had made way for Nicola Sturgeon. Salmond was acquitted of rape in a widely publicised trial last year. He accused Sturgeon and the Scottish Government of acting illegally and attempting to stitch him up. Some people say that the failures of these institutions, the blurring of the boundaries between party, government and prosecution service, mean that Scotland is in danger of becoming a failed state. I disagree. The Scottish civil servant hasn't failed. Its leadership has failed. The Crown Office hasn't failed. Its leadership has failed. Scotland hasn't failed, its leadership has failed. So the importance of this inquiry is for each and every one of us to help put this right. Nicola Sturgeon angrily rejected the claims made by Salmond. Anyone who is suggesting uh, that prosecution decisions or decisions that the Crown Office takes in terms of upholding court orders is in any way politically influenced or politically driven, is not just wrong um, and not just completely lacking in a single shred of evidence to back that claim up. But I would also suggest that they are signing up to a dangerous and quite deluded conspiracy theory. What lay behind the very public falling out between Nicola Sturgeon and Alex Salmond? And have the attacks on Sturgeon by Salmond since his court case damaged her political standing? This is a very, a very long and, and convoluted and um, an unpleasant, <laughs> unpleasant story. The, the salmon, the salmon affair. I think its roots stretch back to the aftermath of the 2014 referendum, when Salmon resigned as SNP leader and Scottish First Minister, having lost the independence vote, and Sturgeon was was rapidly appointed leader in his place. I remember interviewing Salmond actually just before the 2015 UK general election up in Aberdeenshire, which is where the constituency he was running for at the time was, and asking him what role he he played in the day-to-day management of the SNP. And he was thrown by the question because the answer was obviously none. He'd been abruptly cut loose, I think, by Sturgeon, as had a number of other senior nationalist politicians. And he was uneasily trying to find a new role for himself in this this organisation that he had spent the last 30 years building. But the breaking point, the real breaking point in the relationship came uh, a few years later in 2018 when accusations of sexual assault against Salmond 
surfaced um, internally in the Scottish government. They dated back to his time as first minister. He was first minister from 2007 to 2014. And Salmon seemed, in the wake of these allegations, seemed to expect Sturgeon to shelter him from them, which is something she refused to do, although her government did go on to sort of botch its investigation into the claims, and that became a huge source of contention in the ensuing controversy. Salmond, in, in March of last year, was acquitted of 12 allegations of sexual assault in an Edinburgh courtroom. And what followed was this lengthy and intensely bitter, messy inquiry process that Holyrood had involved Scottish Parliament in Edinburgh, during which Salmond appeared to allege that he had been the victim of an elaborate conspiracy orchestrated by people in and around Sturgeon's orbit, the motivations of which were, were never entirely clear. And Salmon, during that inquiry process, went all out to pile pressure on Sturgeon and even went so far as to say that the SNP's current leadership was not fit to deliver independence, which was a remarkable thing to hear for a number of reasons, but not least because the SNP in its current form exists because of Alex Salmon. Salmon built the modern SNP and, and it is fashioned to a greater or lesser extent in his image. Nonetheless, despite these sort of explosive inquiry appearance, Salmond, I, I think, failed to, to seriously damage Sturgeon's political standing and arguably really just ended up destroying his own. So by the time the process had concluded in the spring of this year, the media and public consensus was that Salmond looked like, like a man out for blood. He looked like he was determined to sink his, his female successor and arguably the wider independence project for reasons of, of personal enmity, really. Sturgeon, on the other hand, who, who by consensus is a hugely astute and self-assured politician, was seen as being a much more empathetic performer in front of the inquiry. Um, she denied the, the accusations of conspiracy and emerged from the entire sort of convoluted saga with her rep- reputation intact, if not if not strengthened. What impact, if any, has Salman's breakaway group Alba had on the Scottish political scene? Ultimately, I think the, the impact of Alaba has been has been marginal. I mean, the party secured less than 2% of the vote nationwide. Salmond was roundly beaten by the Greens in his own political backyard in the northeast of Scotland. At best, from Salmond's perspective, Alaba managed to um, fleetingly galvanise the most restive and impatient parts of the independence movement into an alternative to Sturgeon's SNP, which is viewed... By, by some nationalists as being far too cautious in its in its approach to independence. At worst, Alaba essentially just siloed off all the most crankish and socially conservative and anti-woke parts of, of the movement into a now defunct fringe outfit. And when you talk to senior SNP politicians, senior SNP liberals, they're very happy with the way that what they see is a sort of Trumpian contingent of, of the SNP or of the broader nationalist movement the way it has been vanquished and sidelined from the mainstream. So I don't think there's any future for Alba. I mean, they have a couple of MPs, defectors from the SNP's Westminster group. They have a handful of councillors across Scotland. But in the wake of the of the May result, they will no longer receive the kind of media attention they need in order to build a national political presence. So my guess is that Salmon now, having dominated the Scottish political scene for the last five or, or 10 or 15 years, 20 years perhaps, is done as a, as a national political figure. But he'll probably sort of stalk the landscape a bit and and 
where possible, opportunistically make life uncomfortable for Sturgeon. It's not really clear what his what his overarching political purpose is anymore, other than to other than to disrupt Nicola Sturgeon's governance of the country. During the 2014 referendum, the SNP was joined on its left flank by the Radical Independence campaign. Cap Boyd was one of the most prominent figures in the campaign. The following clip comes from a speech she gave in 2014, putting forward a left-wing case for independence. The independence debate for me, it represents an opportunity that the 18th of September presents a chance and it's a small opening in a system that has brought misery and despair for so many. It's a small gap in a system of politics that represents privilege, that represents the already rich and powerful. And I think that a yes vote opens up that gap wider. It wedges it open and gives voice and a renewed voice to those who are against war, seeking an alternative to austerity and looking towards an alternative vision of society that's run in the interests of the many. And I want to start by saying, and it's sometimes it feels like a bit of a mad thing to say, but I think it's important to have this blunt honesty in the debate, and that's that Britain has failed. Britain's failed my generation, it's failed generations that came before, and it will continue to fail generations that come next. And it's failed in three ways. And those ways are economically, socially, and politically. Going back to 2014 and the time of the referendum campaign, the radical independence campaign seemed to punch above its weight in terms of public debate and profile, perhaps harking back to the high point of the Scottish Socialist Party in the late 90s and the early 2000s before the court case involving Tommy Sheridan. Why do you think the radical pro-independence left has not been able to build upon that? I mean, I think the the influence of radical independence has dissipated for a couple of reasons. The first is that the SNP soaked up most of the grassroots energy that developed during the 2014 referendum campaign and the Scottish Greens soaked up what was left. So there really wasn't an awful lot of space available politically and electorally for an organisation like Radical Independence to flourish once that initial rush and referendum campaign rush had worn off. And that became brutally apparent when, when Rise, which I was, I was involved with, and which was an alliance between Radical Independence and the Scottish Socialist Party, tried and, and failed pretty miserably to win seats at the 2016 Holyrood election. But the second reason is that it's, it's difficult, I think, to sustain an organisation like Radical Independence in the absence of a referendum, in the absence of a clear rallying point for activists. So perhaps if a second referendum is called, radical independence will, will re-emerge and, and play a central role in the, in the debate, organising and agitating for independence from the left. But before then, for as long as the debate focuses in on questions of process and constitutional technicality, it's difficult to see what kind of impact radical independence will be able to have and it's difficult to see it sort of escaping or or, or any other organization for that matter um, in the broader independence movement escaping from the SNP shadows. In 2014 the British Labour Party threw all of its weight behind the no campaign. In the final stages of the referendum former Prime Minister Gordon Brown made a high profile speech opposing independence. We fought two world wars together. And there is not a cemetery in Europe 
that does not have Scots, English, Welsh and Irish lying side by side. And when young men were injured in these wars, they didn't look to each other and ask whether you were Scots or English. They came to each other's aid because we were part of a common cause. Brown and Labour helped turn the tide in the referendum, but they faced electoral wipeout in the Westminster election the following year, losing all but one of their seats. The party has yet to recover. Where is the Scottish Labour Party going under its new leadership? And how is Labour positioning itself between the SNP and the Scottish Tories? So Anna Sarwar, who is the new leader of Scottish Labour, would claim that he has steadied the ship and would claim that he salvaged the party from from sort of approaching oblivion, which is where he would he would say it was heading under the leadership of, of Richard Leonard, his predecessor, who was a Corbyn sympathiser. In reality, in May, Sarwar led Scottish Labour, I think, to its worst ever result at a devolutionary election. The party finished in third in third place, nine seats behind the Conservatives, and its share of the vote on both the constituency and the list um, ballot dropped. Sarwar is a, is, a, is a young man, he's 38, and he's presented himself as as a fresh face in Scottish politics. But he's actually been around for a very long time and he has a track record as a, as a, as a serial loser, not to put too, too fine a point on. Um, he helped write Scottish Labour's manifesto in 2007, which, which inaugurated the first nationalist government, SNP government. He then inherited... A Westminster seat, Glasgow Central, from his from his father, Mohammed Sarwar, who's now governor of Punjab in Pakistan. He then lost that seat to the SNP in 2015, and has been floating around the leadership of the Labour Party in Scotland since then. He's viewed as being Sarwar as pretty implausibly, in my view, as, as a slick media performer. But that apparent likability sort of disguises the fact that he has no meaningful political orientation. He's a career legislator. Um, and it dis- disguises the fact, crucially, that he has nothing new to say on the constitutional question. So our position is that he just does not want to talk about independence. And that's a problem when independence is a dominant issue in Scottish political life. And at least 50% of the of the population does want to discuss it. Um, so he, he's, he's, Sarwar has sort of developed these, adopted these tortured um, constitutional positions. So he opposes the second referendum, but he doesn't want, to, want English Conservatives telling Scots want to do, what to do. And he's against Brexit, but he doesn't think Scotland should re-enter the EU on its own terms. And in my view, these contradictions point to the dynamics of Scottish Labour's decline. So the SNP is, is the party of liberal or centre-left nationalism. The Tories are the party of centre-right unionism. And Scottish Labour, not just under Sarwar, but under a succession of different leaders, has just sat in this sort of nebulous middle ground. It's not all that left wing. It's not all that right wing. It lacks an identity and it lacks a plan. And as a result, its its appeal resonates with an ever-shrinking slice of the Scottish elected. And there's nothing Anna Sarwar has done thus far that suggests he's capable of, of reversing any of those trends. The UK general election of 2019 confirmed that Britain would be leaving the European Union and on terms agreed by Boris Johnson with the EU. In July 2020, Johnson used his first trip to Scotland since the election to brush aside calls for a fresh vote on independence. What I'm saying is that the union is a fantastically strong 
uh, institution. It's helped our country uh, through thick and thin. Uh, it's very, very valuable in terms of the, uh, the support we've been able to give to everybody throughout all uh, corners of the, of the UK. And, uh, you know, we had a referendum on, uh, on, on breaking up the union uh, a few years ago. I think only six years ago. That is not, uh, that is not a generation by any computation. And uh, I think what people really want to do is see our whole country uh, coming back strongly together. And that's what we're going to do. At the end of 2020, Johnson concluded his deal, a so-called hard Brexit, leaving the single market and the customs union, as well as the EU itself. His Christmas message was delivered in the rhetorical style that appears to be far more appealing to voters in England than in Scotland. By the way, tonight, on Christmas Eve, I have a small present for anyone who may be looking for something to read in that sleepy post-Christmas lunch moment. And here it is. Tidings, glad tidings of great joy, because this is a deal, uh, a deal to give certainty to business and travellers and uh, all investors in our country from the 1st of January, uh, a deal with our friends and partners in the EU. You remember the oven-ready deal? by which we came out on January the 31st, that oven-ready deal was just the start of this is the feast. Full of fish, uh, by the way. And I believe it will be the basis of a happy and successful and stable partnership with our friends in the EU for years to come. So that's it. That's the good news from Brussels. Now for the sprouts. And a happy Christmas to you all. During the run-up to this year's Scottish Parliament election, Johnson stuck to his guns once again. Should you allow a referendum? Well, let, let's uh, let's wait and see what uh, actually happens. But uh, I think that most people in, uh, in in Scotland, most people around the whole of the UK, feel that this is not the time as we're coming forwards out of a, a, a pandemic together. This is not the time to have a a reckless uh, and, I think, irresponsible uh, second referendum. We had one only a few years ago. I think what we, most people want is to focus on the country and taking it forward and, and rebuilding our, our economy, getting people into work. That seems to me to be the priority for the country. How has the resolution of the Brexit crisis on terms ultimately dictated by the Tory right affected the political landscape in Scotland and the prospects for independence? The standard take on, on this question is probably the correct take. The standard take is that Brexit has simultaneously bolstered and complicated the case for Scottish independence. It's bolstered it in political and democratic terms. So Scots voted overwhelmingly against Brexit, and yet they're having Brexit foisted upon them by a party, the Conservatives, that hasn't won an election in Scotland since 1950. It hasn't won a general election in Scotland since 1955. But it's complicated the case for independence because... An independent Scotland inside the EU would face a hard border, would likely face a hard border with its largest trading partner, which is England. And that would have potentially hugely disruptive consequences for a newly independent state trying to find its fiscal and financial feet. And the SNP has not produced a persuasive response to that issue. And it's and the case for independence won't be won't be ready, it won't be sellable uh, until until the party has produced a, a decent response to that issue. Um, but Brexit has changed Scottish politics in another important regard, in my view. Middle-class Scots, middle-class Scotland, which traditionally 
has been very hostile to radical constitutional change, is now more open to the prospect of independence um, than it was prior to the Brexit referendum. And that feeds directly into Nicola Sturgeon's independence strategy. Her strategy is to de-risk independence, to make it seem like the more moderate course of constitutional action when set against the apparent chaos of the English political landscape under Johnson's leadership. And I think that's, that strategy genuinely does appeal to sections of the Scottish public who would not naturally consider themselves nationalists. And that has been one of the major shifts in Scottish political life over the course of the last four or five years. Do you think it's politically tenable for Boris Johnson or any Tory prime minister for that matter to simply ignore the call from the SNP for a second referendum indefinitely? And does the SNP have a plan for that scenario? It's not tenable, in my view, for Johnson to ignore demands for a second referendum indefinitely because of the persistent success of the SNP. The SNP's popularity ensures that the national question remains at the forefront of Scottish and increasingly British political life. And in fact, even behind the scenes, Conservative ministers recognise the scale of the challenge now posed to the, to the future of the union by the SNP. The UK government strategy, as far as I can tell, is, is essentially just to dissemble, to push back the date of a prospective referendum so far that it just essentially fades from view. And that, that could work. I mean, most, most opinion polls in Scotland show that Scots do not want a vote on independence tomorrow, but might like a, a vote on independence in four or five years' time. Um, and Sturgeon is acutely conscious of that tendency in Scottish public opinion and has pledged to deal with the COVID crisis before pressing ahead with her, her plans for a second referendum. That said, I don't think the Tory strategy of delay and defer is is cost-free. I mean, if Scots conclude that Johnson, who is, that Boris Johnson, who is massively unpopular in Scotland, is keeping them inside the union or locking them inside the union against their will, the long-term damage to the Anglo-Scottish relationship would be huge and it would be irreversible. The union was never meant to be a mechanism for English political control over Scotland. It is, in theory at least, a partnership of, of equal nations. And for Scots, there's always been a transactional dimension to that relationship. And what's happened over the course of the last 70 years or so is that the institutions that once bound Britain together, the industrial economy and the welfare state and the Labour Party and the empire, have all weakened and atrophied and in some cases been actively dismantled or attacked by successive British governments. And that has left Scots increasingly with a sense that they no longer have a clear stake in the, in the British state. So unless Johnson has a serious plan for revising the long-term, reversing, sorry, the, the long-term decline of the British state uh, and for bolstering Britishness as a coherent political identity, and I, I don't think he does, then it's very difficult to see demands for Scottish independence dying off. As to your second question, does the SNP have a plan for the scenario I've laid out? Probably not, no. Um, Nicholas Sturgeon is determined to secure a legitimate referendum and legitimacy is sort of a hugely important concept to Sturgeon. In the Scottish context, it means a referendum that is beyond legal and political challenge uh, and that has the tacit or explicit support of the international community 
and in particular the European Union. Europe is absolutely central to, to Sturgeon's independence strategy. Sturgeon wants Scotland to be an independent member state of the EU. Some senior nationalists even talk about um, Scotland joining the Euro if and when it exits, exits the UK. So in the absence of being able to secure that consensual, legally binding, politically agreed referendum, I don't think Sturgeon really has a plan B. And indeed, that was part of the impetus behind Alba, behind Salmon's, Salmon's breakaway project. There is, despite the fact, you know, the vast majority of SNP members remained loyal to Sturgeon and loyal, loyal to the party in the run-up to the, to the May election. There is a sense of frustration at the grassroots level with the way Sturgeon runs things. There's a growing perception that she does not have a coherent plan to secure a second referendum and that perception may well be right but we'll have to wait and see i think it's likely that there'll be court challenges um legal challenges that will test the capacity of Holyrood to hold for instance a consultative referendum um and sturgeon will want to see those court challenges through before making a sort of final bid for, for independence towards the second half of this parliamentary term. This, this parliamentary term will run from, from this year until probably 2026. The Scottish independence movement has come to the fore at the same time as another campaign for national sovereignty in Western Europe. The Catalan regional government held a referendum in 2017 in defiance of the Spanish authorities. The government in Madrid responded with a violent clampdown, as CBS News reported. Spanish riot police moved in after local Catalonia police refused to crack down on voters across the region. Some officers aggressively ripped people away from polling sites. Others fired rubber bullets. Catalonia police say more than 450 people were injured in the clashes. But this national show of force, backed by the anti-independence Spanish Prime Minister Mariano Rajoy, was no match for people who packed Barcelona's streets today. They turned out by the thousands to defiantly vote in an illegal referendum for independence from Spain. The Autonomous District of Catalonia, led by President Carles Puigdemont, approved the referendum last month, but never got permission from the Spanish government, who threatened to use all means possible to stop it. Recent polls showed slightly less than half of Catalonia's 7.5 million people supported leaving the nation. Spain has postponed similar referendums in the past out of fear of losing the economically prosperous district. After the referendum, the Spanish authorities suspended Catalan autonomy and issued arrest warrants for members of the Catalan government. One of those ministers, Clara Ponsati, went to Scotland, where she appeared at the SNP conference in 2018. That's about all I need to say today. Thank you, thank you, thank you. overwhelmed with gratitude. What you're doing just shows your deep belief in democracy and human rights. And Catalans are deeply grateful to you for that. By doing this, you're supporting democracy through the world, through Europe, at your, at Scotland and in Catalonia. So thanks, thanks, thanks. Thank you very, very much. The case against Ponsati was dropped this week, but the wider Catalan movement appears to be facing a logjam, 
unable to defeat the forces of Spanish nationalism and the Spanish state. Following on from that final point about Sturgeon's scenario, do you think it would be too alarmist to speculate about potential parallels between Scotland and Catalonia if there is no agreed pathway for a referendum between Edinburgh and London? I think it probably is um, too alarmist, yeah. I mean, uh, because of this question of legitimacy. I mean, the SNP has poured a huge amount of time and effort over the course of the last few years into courting European political leaders because they want endorsement. They want Europe to come out and say, listen, if you vote yes in a future referendum, we will readmit you relatively quickly into into the European Union. And that won't happen if Scotland, if the process of secession is heavily contested. Because Spain and Italy and France, countries with incipient or, or fully developed breakaway movements, simply would not allow it to happen. On the other hand, senior Spanish politicians have acknowledged that if Scotland votes to leave the UK consensually and legally, it wouldn't block Scottish accession to the EU. And then there's a more practical argument against a sort of Catalan-style wildcat vote, which is that it wouldn't it wouldn't work. It wouldn't yield the desired result. If the UK government, if the Unionist parties said that they did not support a second referendum and then Sturgeon staged one anyway, the likelihood is that the unionist half of Scotland would just boycott that vote. And so the, the result would, would not be would not be viewed as as binding. So Sturgeon does understand that. And indeed it's again it's central to her her entire approach to the to the question of independence. What she does in the event that the UK government just continues to refuse to play to play ball is is a separate question entirely, and I, I think again that growing sense of impatience among the nationalist base is, is understandable for that reason. In the event of Scotland becoming an independent state over the next decade, perhaps, how do you think the content of Scottish independence is likely to measure up to the hopes that have been invested in it by many people? I think that depends on how high you set your expectations. I mean, the central tension in contemporary Scottish nationalism is between the the disruptive and populist demands of a grassroots movement trying to do something very radical, which is break up the British state, and then the small C conservative and managerial instincts of the of the of the SNP leadership. The vision of independence, as I understand it, advanced by the SNP hierarchy is one that sticks as, as closely as possible to the neoliberal consensus in British public life, for want of a better term. So under the SNP and Independent Scotland, would go on using the pound as its currency. It would have low corporate tax rates. It would keep the UK system of financial regulation. And there would probably be a bit more redistribution. There would be a bit more social democracy, but only a bit. And it, it certainly wouldn't be funded by sizable tax rises on the rich. And so what all that amounts to is an independent Scotland that looks quite a lot like a non-independent Scotland. Scotland as it currently stands. The radical case for independence, the left case for independence, is that leaving the UK would widen the scope of political possibility for Scotland. So we might, for instance, be able to dislodge British nuclear weapons from the Clyde or more rapidly wind down the North Sea oil and gas sector or design a constitutional structure that doesn't have the monarchy at its heart. What the SNP is absolutely not proposing to do is overhaul the Scottish class system. This is a, a party that, under Sturgeon's leadership at least, might not argue under Salmon's too, just meticulously has meticulously avoided any hint of class antagonism. So I think 
independence would almost certainly be a deflating experience for a lot of people and a disillusioning experience for a lot of people. Equally, that sense of disappointment would have to be measured against the reality of life as part of the UK, which is not exactly free of its own disappointments. So the SNP is engaged actually in a process of expectation management currently. They're they're saying they'll be they'll be very conscious of the size and scale of Scotland's deficit. They're not committing to far-reaching new spending plans. They're they're trying to present themselves as responsible stewards of Scotland's economic and national interests. And so I suspect the more, I mean, we've already seen over the course of the last few years, the more sort of radical edges of the independence movement be, be shorn away. And I strongly suspect that process will continue for between now and, and the next referendum, if and when another referendum arrives. As things stand, what do you think the economic prospects are for an independent Scotland and how realistic are the plans of the SNP for the Scottish economy? I think these days the SNP's economic vision for independence is really heavily dependent on, on attracting foreign direct investment into the into the country. So it's quite a good way of understanding how, how the SNP's approach to economics and the economics of independence have, has changed over the course of the last 40 or 50 years. The intensifying debate over the future of North Sea oil and gas, for instance, and Scotland's considerable renewable assets is a case in point in that respect. In the 1970s, after um, significant mineral deposits were first discovered in the North Sea, the SNP advanced what I think you could safely describe as a relatively interventionist or statist economic model. Crudely speaking, the party wanted um, an independent Scotland to own most or all of the country's fossil fuel assets and for the value of those assets to be channeled into into a sovereign wealth fund. And it was a kind of, they advanced a kind of national strategic capitalism in keeping with that, pioneered by Norway and, and other mineral-rich Nordic social democracies. Today, um, I would say the SNP is much more relaxed about foreign ownership of Scottish assets. Um, the North Sea, for example, is is monopolized these days, um, not just by US oil companies, but by private equity firms and sovereign wealth funds attached to various foreign states, including Norway. So Scotland doesn't control North Sea licensing, London does, but Sturgeon's government has taken, I I think you could could argue, a relatively hands-off approach to to the country's burgeoning green infrastructure too. So um, at the end of last year, Holyrood allowed BIFAB, which was a flagship engineering yard in Fife, that was going to build the next generation of Scottish wind turbines to go to the wall, having already built it at once. Um, and the Scottish renewables industry is littered with other examples like BIFAB, um, where the major investors are from South Korea or France or Denmark, and not yet at least from a publicly owned, the major investments are not from a publicly owned Scottish national investment bank. So the obvious irony here for me is that where British political elites allowed the multi-billion dollar benefits of Scotland's oil to be squandered in the 80s and 90s, devolved Scottish elites led by the SNP are presiding over a similar process today with regards to Scotland's renewable renewables potential, which is which is huge. And it's not hard to see from, from there what kind of economic challenges and pitfalls might cr- confront an independent, independent Scottish state. I think if you challenge the SNP on this, they'd say their their economics, well, maybe they wouldn't admit to this, but their economics were essentially brown-eyed. 
in the, the party would say it supports sort of in quotation marks a dynamic market economy strong enough to bankroll a relatively generous welfare settlement. In reality, I mean, there's a real dearth of creativity and imagination at the heart of the SNP when it comes to to economics and imagining what an independent Scotland could look like. In reality, the party cleaves, it doesn't stray far from whatever ideological or, or economic consensus happens to be in place in Britain at any given time. What will the coalition pact that's now been announced between the SNP and the Greens mean for the period to come in Scottish politics? I think it's quite hard to say precisely what it's going to mean. I mean, it depends on how, how long it lasts, for one thing. There are obvious political grounds for co- cooperation between the two parties, with the Greens and the SNP, of course, support independence and want to see a second independence referendum. Both are staunchly pro-European and anti-Brexit. Sturgeon's motivations are relatively clear in that she felt she fell one seat short of an outright majority in May and wants to govern without the constant looming threat of, of a vote of no confidence in Parliament. And then for the Greens, they have they currently have seven seats in, in Parliament. They won eight, but their eighth MSP went on to become the presiding officer of, of the of the Holyrood Chamber. The Greens have been a feature of life at Holyrood since the Parliament was created in 1999. And I think they are just at a point now where they're sort of desperate to exercise actual government power for the first time. And they're keen to amplify the political influence in, in a way they haven't been able to do previously. On a more cynical level, I mean, I think Sturgeon sees the benefits of a uh, sees a couple of benefits to the coalition with the greens the first is that cop 26 um the crucial climate summit is being held in glasgow in november and glasgow is not only scotland's largest city but it's also sturgeon's adopted hometown and the snp's the center of the snp's urban central belt support um, so sturgeon has brought the greens into government in an effort i think to sort of bolster her, her environmental credentials ahead of the cop the COP summit. She's also now a decade and a half into into power, and I suspect she feels the need to cover her left flank a bit and sort of freshen up, freshen up the SNP government. Um, and she can do that by working alongside the Greens, who are a broadly anti-capitalist party who sit to Sturgeon's left on essentially every issue. And they'll be able to work together on on the climate, on the constitution, on various aspects of social policy. So they published a shared policy document. And there was some pretty promising stuff in there, particularly on rent controls and reform of the Gender Recognition Act, which is a hugely contentious issue in, a, in Scottish political life, and possibly on land reform. Um, and there were some fairly big ticket commitments on the decarbonisation of Scotland's public transport infrastructure as well. And I think if the most eye-catching aspects of the coalition deal are implemented, then it probably would signal a more a newer, more radical turn in Sturgeon's governing style. But that is a that is a sizable if. And over the course of the last over the course of the last her, her last fourteen years in office, Sturgeon has shown an incredible capacity, in my view, to bury radical proposals in the long grass of reviews and consultations and policy investigations. So the danger for the Greens is that they end up getting absorbed into this technocracy that the SNP has built at Holyrood, um, and they end up taking the flak for the SNP's failings, much as Nick Clegg's Liberal Democrats did as part of the Tory um, austerity coalition between 2010 and 2015 at Westminster. The Greens are acutely um, aware of that risk, but Sturgeon is incredibly, or can be an incredibly ruthless and unsentimental politician when she needs to be. 
um, and my suspicion is that the sort of the dividing, I mean, the key dividing line between the Greens and the SNP is that the Greens are ultimately a party of social transformation. The SNP are ultimately a party of political and electoral management. The Greens want to change Scotland. The, SM, the SNP's long-term goal is to stay in power and, if possible, build a sustainable majority for independence. And I, I feel like that fault line will at least create some real strain in the coming months and years. It might just prove to be unbridgeable, you know, when, when the sort of brass, brass tax, the real day-to-day challenges of, of government start to kick in. So Scotland, if this works, Scotland, and Sturgeon is sincere in, in the commitment she's made in the shared policy document, Scotland could see some pretty exciting left-leaning, left-of-centre reforms over the next few years. If it doesn't, Scotland could end up losing its only really sort of authentically anti-capitalist voice in, in, in Parliament. You know, the Greens could pay a, a political price for for going into government with Sturgeon. Uh, so there's quite, it's quite finely balanced at this point in time. And a huge amount, I think, will rest on, it already does rest, the fact that the deal happened at all. It's a testament to the sort of, the, the personal relationship between that exists between Nicholas Sturgeon and between Patrick Harvey, who's one of the Greens' two co-conveners. They just seem to like each other. They've been in Parliament together for a long time. But again, these these personal relationships, Sturgeon has seen a number of these personal relationships come and go over the course of her long political career. Um, and, and one more, I don't think, will worry her if it's, if it's in, her, in her own, too much of it's in her own political interests. Many thanks to Jamie Maxwell for that discussion of Scottish politics. If you want to know more, we've published some of Jamie's articles on the Jacobin website. 